You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. As we've already said earlier this morning, Merry Christmas. This is perhaps my favorite time of the year to say that because outside of the church, the decorations have started to coming down. People have moved on from the holiday season, so it's a, a bit countercultural to keep saying Merry Christmas. It's my little act of rebellion is to keep it going a little bit longer. Um, I heard outside of Target, I was making a return this week, and I heard like somebody, one of the workers accidentally told someone Merry Christmas just because they'd been in the habit of it, and one of the other persons was giving them a hard time, and I wanted to turn around and say, like, no, no, really, it is still Christmas. He was right. Um, but I restrained myself. Uh, so we're on day 10 of 12 of Christmas, as it's recognized by the church calendar. Um, so it's fitting that we continue to press into the season. My other act of mini-protest that I did this week, though, was that I decided to read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol this week. Um, so after, after Christmas Day, I'm, I'm not ready to put it behind me yet, so I went ahead and read The Christmas Carol. Um, there are dozens of theater and film adaptations of the story. So even if you've never read the book, which is a very short little novella, um, even if you've never read the book, you probably are familiar with the basic outline of the story. Um, Christmas is approaching, but Ebenezer Scrooge shows no signs at all of warming to the season. He's a wealthy, miserly old man, and um, he scoffs at requests for charity, um, resents having to give his clerk a day off, um, basically says, I'm going to give it to you because I have to, but you're basically stealing from me by taking Christmas Day off. Um, and then scorns his nephew's invitation to Christmas dinner with his famous statement, bah, humbug. And unbeknownst to him, though, what he doesn't realize is that his stony heart, his lack of generosity, is leading him on the path to damnation. So he's visited by four ghosts on Christmas Eve um, who come to give him warning. First, his old partner, Jacob Marley, who carries with him his own chains that were forged by his own greed, and then the ghosts of Christmas, past, present, and future. Each of the spirits who visit Scrooge helps him to soften his heart, but it is the ghost of Christmas present who gives the clearest view of what Dickens really thinks that Christmas is all about. He appears as a giant surrounded by mounds and mounds of food with a cornucopia, the, the Thanksgiving horn of plenty, as a torch that he holds above him. And as they... He takes Scrooge around to invisibly visit all these different families, both in and around London. He'll occasionally shake incense from his, from his torch um, that sprinkles down upon people and gives them a sense of gratitude. Uh, he says that it's particularly flavorful for the poor. Uh, it gives them a sense of gratitude for what they have. Um, you see fights start to break out at the grocer, and then he sprinkles that on them, and instead they turn into a recognition that it's Christmas season and they need to have goodwill and cheer towards their fellow man. It's really a lovely picture of generosity and goodwill, um, but it does, in a way, miss the true heart of what Christmas is about. Not only because Jesus is not at the center, and Dickens was writing in a time when Christianity was just kind of assumed in the culture, and so he does mention church, he does mention that the, the, the birth of Christ is sort of the reason for this season of generosity, um, but it still is not really at the heart of what's happening. But the other problem is just that the whole thing is just too nice. Jesus certainly calls us to love our neighbor, and a generous spirit is part of that. But Jesus did not empty himself, taking on the form of a slave, and come to earth in human likeness 
so that we could be nice to one another. The eternal word did not assume a body and submit to suffering and death merely for the sake of giving us a generous spirit. He came because we needed to be saved. All of humanity was enslaved to the rule of sin and death. And the birth of Christ put all of the powers that would assert their rule over humankind on notice. That God has not abandoned the earth or his people. The reign of evil, no matter how terrifying, is temporary. God would put all things in subjection under his feet, and Christ is the one in whom he would do so. The true Lord of creation has drawn near to us and declared that he will save his people. When we proclaim that the birth of Christ means peace on earth and goodwill towards men, it's not a statement about human behavior, about how it's going to change us to, to act peacefully and to have goodwill towards one another. It is a recognition that our salvation is at hand, that our freedom is assured because God himself has come to deliver us. It's like that part of an action movie where the hero shows up on the scene and you know with absolute certainty that at that point that the bad guy's days are numbered because he has come and he will come out victorious. But the certain doom doesn't mean that the enemy will just lay down arms. The final victory, the ultimate judgment of sin, comes at the second coming of Christ. And in the meantime, sin and death and all of the powers of evil that work in their name will continue to thrash out and try to assert their now broken authority. With this as the backdrop, it makes sense why today's gospel reading is an important part of the Christmas story. Because Herod, at some level, understood what, that his authority was under threat by Jesus. Not because he was particularly wise. He was a paranoid megalomaniac who saw threats to his power around every corner. The Roman Emperor Augustus once said that it's better to be Herod's pig than his son, because on multiple occasions he had his own sons executed for supposedly plotting against him. But Herod did know that if a child was born who could claim to be a king of the Jews from the line of David, that would threaten his own hold upon the throne. So Herod behaved as do all those who cherish their position of authority above all else. He used his power to try to crush the threat while it was small, before it could develop into a true challenge to his reign. He didn't care that many innocents were caught up in his schemes. And this pattern is repeated over and over and over again throughout history at scales large and small. In politics, between nation and nation, in politics within nations, in businesses who, who try to crush their competition, in homeowners associations, in dysfunctional families. Wherever there is power, the powerful will oppress because they can. And because often it works. The ruthlessness allows them to hold on to their position of power and authority. This is one of the results of living in a world where sin holds sway. Power is not used for its rightful end, to protect the vulnerable and the weak, to bring justice and to further God's order. It becomes an idol that distorts all those who hold on to it. Like the ring in the Lord of the Rings, where this, this symbol of power becomes something that everyone who tries to grasp it becomes but a shadow of the person that they're supposed to be. And that happens all over in our world, where power and the attempt to grasp onto it fills people with sin and greed. It hurts, it maims and destroys. And the poor and the weak and the vulnerable 
are the ones who are injured as a result. Again, in a sense, Herod was right to recognize that the birth of Jesus presented a challenge to his authority, not because he wished to take Herod's throne, but because when God himself, who holds ultimate authority and power, emptied himself and took the form of a babe, when he became one of the poor and the vulnerable who are so often oppressed, he gave notice to all those who use and misuse power that their days are numbered. Where Herod was terribly, terribly wrong was to think he could do anything to stop God's plan. Ironically, his lashing out only made his powerlessness all the more evident, for neither the violence of a king nor the tragedy that resulted could undermine the purposes of God. This is part of why Matthew tells us about Joseph's dream and the escape of Jesus and his family. He wants us to understand that God is not taken by surprise, that the violent actions of a petty tyrant cannot stop his plan of salvation from unfolding. I was watching some interviews with the Clemson football coach in the lead-up to the Clemson-Ohio State game, which did not go as I would have liked as a Clemson graduate. Um, but the, the coach was asked several times um, about how the season had unfolded with all the challenges that coronavirus had presented, and, and his statement that he said more than once was, God doesn't say oops, because everything that's in this, in this season is part of a plan, and we have a chance to grow in character because of what's happening. In the same way, the escape of the Holy Family from Herod is not a coincidence. It's not just a lucky eking out at the last moment. It's the orchestrated plan of God. And this was not the first time that a despot had tried to use his power to thwart the will of God. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus fled to Egypt, immediately bringing to mind the years that the Hebrews spent under the tyranny of Pharaoh. The prophecy that Matthew attributes to being fulfilled by this journey, out of Egypt I have called my son, further underscores the point. That quote comes from Hosea chapter 11, and in that context it's pretty clearly pointing back to the exodus from Egypt, talking about Israel as someone whom God had pulled out of Egypt, and therefore they should respond to him in gratefulness and gratitude. But Matthew sees in these verses a further fulfillment in Jesus, who is God's beloved son. And by making that connection, and it's very intentional that he makes that connection, he invites us to recognize a pattern that has occurred throughout the salvation story. Time and again, kings and rulers tried to raise up their hands against God's chosen ones. Pharaoh refused Moses' request to let his people go. Saul tried to kill David. The, Babylonian, the Babylonians carried the Jews off into captivity. But each and every time, they found that their best efforts and worst deeds were only used by God to accomplish his purposes. Our world is still filled with people who abuse their power. In many parts of the world, people still flounder under the hands of tyrants. In our own country, there are many who enter the world of politics for their own enrichment instead of the common good. There are companies that do real harm to people and to the environment in the pursuit of power and profit. There are far, far too many people still stuck in slavery. There are unborn children who are killed because they have no voice. There are pastors who prey upon their congregations. There are fathers who abuse their wives and children. In any and every system where there is power, there are people who will seek to abuse it. 
And all of this can be a bit overwhelming, really, when we look at the world and we look at how thoroughly broken it is, how power is misused, and at times it can be paralyzing. What can we do in the face of such injustice? When we ourselves feel that we are among the powerless and we have no ability to stop it, what we can do is we can hold on to hope. Because despite all of the abuses of the powerful, all of their activity is merely the last spasms of a dying beast. The head of the serpent has already been crushed. The end of evil's reign is written not in stone, but in an ink even more indelible in the blood of Christ. The victory that was promised at his death was made sure by, or promised at his birth was made sure by his death and resurrection. And this hope that we have given, this hope that we hold on to, is not just for us. In this much, Dickens was absolutely right. Wealth hoarded does no good either for the wealthy or for the poor who desperately need help. And the same is true of hope. Hope behaves the same way. If we try to keep it to ourselves, if we don't spread the good news that no earthly power can keep God's purposes from coming to fruition, then our own hope will wither in disbelief. And there are others who desperately need it who will go without. We must carry the, victor the message of God's sure victory beyond these walls into a world that is still suffering under the effects of sin. Because the truth is that there is still much suffering in the world. While we celebrate the story of Christmas, while we celebrate God's breaking the powers of authority of sin and death, there's still much suffering, and much of it is still concentrated among the poor and the powerless. So far I've talked mostly about the miraculous escape of the Holy Family, but there's another side to this story. There were mothers and fathers who lost their sons because of Herod's cruel use of his power. Matthew, as he writes the gospel, doesn't try to just gloss over their loss. He connects the event to a scripture from Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. There's been lots of ink spilled over why Matthew thought that this particular scripture was a prophecy that was fulfilled by what happened. But I think that the core of it, of what's going on here, is that by connecting to this, this Old Testament piece of the story of weeping and lamentation and loss, Matthew is recognizing the depth of grief that these families were experiencing. He does not try to pretend that the mothers of these children should recognize God's greater plan and simply accept their loss. Their loss is real, and it matters. God cares about their loss. God cared enough to have Matthew record it in Scripture. God cared enough to become one of the poor and vulnerable himself. And while Jesus miraculously escaped this massacre, he later allowed himself to be killed by the powerful men of his age. We serve a God who knows what it is to suffer under the hands of the powerful, even unto death. This is a message that we need to carry as well. With our, as we carry the good news of God's reign, we need to, to carry the message that God cares about the poor. He cares about the vulnerable. He cares about all of those who suffer because of sin and the abuses of power. He cares about us. He cares about you and the losses that you have experienced. The good news is not merely that God cares. It's also that God acted. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, he showed himself to be victorious over the power of sin and death. He invites us to share in that victory now, 
and has promised to one day destroy every ruler and every authority and every power, including death, for good. The tragedies that we experience do not undermine God's plan for salvation. And this is good news of a certain future that we all have, that we all hold. But it's not only news about the future. In Christ, God has freed us from the tyranny of sin and death right now. Not in the sense that he has removed us from all suffering, but in the sense that he has allowed us to, to stand up underneath it in hope and to have joy even in the midst of suffering. He's broken the authority of all those who still serve those old masters of sin and death. And so when we carry the good news of what Christ has done into the world, we do so in defiance of those old powers. In both word and deed, we proclaim that Christ is Lord and that all of the Herods of the world are not. What does this look like as we as the church try to do this? As we step forward with this message of good news, we engage the tragedies and abuses of power that we see in the daily news with hope instead of a resigned cynicism or a self-protecting rage praying, come, Lord Jesus, as we do so. We look for those people who are crushed under the weight of the world, and we bring them the good news of what Christ has done. We walk alongside those who are suffering tragedy, without trying to minimize their pain. And in doing so, we show them by our own actions that we serve a God who truly cares about them. We love our neighbors because God loved them enough to send his beloved son into the world. And yes, we do give generously to alleviate the suffering of the world. We do so not because of the generic goodwill of the ghost of Christmas present, but as a result of the specific and certain hope that we have in Jesus. We are heralds of the king who reigns now and who will come again at the final judgment of all who oppose him, proclaiming his kingdom with our words and showing what his kingdom will look like with our deeds. The Vestry and I are having some conversations right now about how our church can best serve the poor and the powerless in our own community. Church, I invite you to join us with us in prayer as we consider what our church's common generosity will look like in the days ahead. Because serving others is not something we just do in addition to the gospel. It's not sort of an add-on so that we can be nice or present ourselves well to the world. It's not a marketing ploy that we do as the church. It is essential to our mission of proclaiming the gospel. It's at the very core of it because it's a part of how we proclaim the reality of God's kingdom and let the world know that neither the powers of the world nor the tragedies that befall us can possibly undermine the work of God. And it's important that we do that together as a body, that we, that we step out not just as individuals with generous hearts, but as the church showing the generosity of God. But at the same time, don't wait until you receive an invitation from us before you step out in generosity, before you deliver the message of God's hope and goodness to the world. Look at the brokenness that you encounter. Look at the tragedies that you see in people in your own life and in people who are far off. There are stories that are more than we can tell of the sorrows of this world. There are more needs than we can possibly meet. But we have the opportunity to, to take some of those and to act and carry words of hope and acts of confidence into the darkness. We can live in defiance of the powers of our age because we are confident that our salvation is secure 
And that the work that we do is not something wasted on a world that will just swallow up those efforts and have them be nothing more than a drop in a bucket. They are part of living into the fact that we are living into God's kingdom now. And we have the sure and certain hope that all of these acts that are done in his name will be brought into his kingdom in the future. And therefore, it's worth stepping out with this hope, not just at Christmas, but all year round. Because we believe and we know that nothing can stop God from accomplishing his purposes. And we can live in the joy that he has given us a part in accomplishing that purpose. Amen. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.